Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from an educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to share that both this podcast and the community I started in 2021 called The Iconic Journey in CRE is now part of a new nonprofit organization with that same name. The new company will offer opportunities for sponsorship to grow the community both in membership and in programs. It also allows you as listeners to show your appreciation for this podcast, which has delivered episodes twice monthly since August 2019 with a charitable contribution. Transitioning the community and podcast into the nonprofit organization is underway. The community, which is open to commercial real estate professionals between the ages of 25 and 40 years old, is currently up to 65 members and growing. If you would like to learn more about either joining the community or contributing to the podcast, please reach out directly to me at john at coenterprises, C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Separately, my private company, Coenterprises, now will focus only on advisory work for early stage real estate firms and career counseling. If you have interest in learning more about its services, please review my website at coenterprises.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest for today's show is Jeff Burkus. Jeff is the president of Federal Realty Investments, which is one of the largest REITs retail in the United States. Last year, early last year, I interviewed his boss and partner, CEO Don Wood of Federal, and Don talked about his corporate background. Jeff has more of a real estate background, which we get into in the episode. And so it's interesting how they co-manage the firm and how they look at things a little differently. Don talked about Federal's extraordinary success, which Jeff reiterates, and then also talks about his his opportunities and things that he's been working on at Federal as well. So some of the takeaways of the episode, we talk a little bit about how they co-manage the firm, how he uh, came out of uh, the Midwest in a small town and learned the real estate sector through the investment arena, going up here, coming to Washington to get his MBA, and then going into the real estate business uh, through the investment and investment area through ITT and General Electric, and then connecting eventually into federal realty. 
and growing his career there. He goes on to talk about how federal dealt with the pandemic recently and how they were able to renegotiate some of their leases and struggle through that. Their investment strategy, which is really what he oversees for the firm as far as acquisitions and their development projects, they go into their unique ambiances of their projects, which I've noticed ever since I've gone to federal properties here in, the, in Montgomery County, primarily in Maryland. Also, their expansion now into the healthcare and biotech sectors at Pike and Rose, their major project up on the Pike, Rockville Pike. Jeff talks about some of the innovative things they've been doing in other markets. They're now in South Florida. They're in Southern California. We talk a lot about his California investments and the Phoenix market. He also talks a little bit about relationships and networking and what's important about growing your network in the industry. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Jeff Burkus. So Jeff Burkus, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. John, thanks a lot for having me. I'm not sure I rise to icon status, but I really do appreciate you thinking of me that way and having me on your show today. Looking forward. Well, to I did. It. I did talk about your bio and the pre in the preliminary, but uh, just reinforcing that you are the currently the president of Federal Realty, one of the oldest and perhaps most successful REITs in in U- U.S. history. You report. To my earlier podcast guest Don Wood, how would you differentiate your differentiate your role compared to Don's as CEO, and how would you complement him in managing Federal Realty? Well, great question, of course. And uh, you know, Don and I have worked together for a very, very long time. Uh, I think it's going on uh, twenty three years. And you know, I I think. Obviously, you know, you don't work someplace for somebody else for that length of time when you don't, generally speaking, have a meeting in the minds on the things that really matter in running a business like Federal. You know, Don and I have a different angle of approach, if you will. You know, Don came into this business not as a real estate person, as a public company person, and he is he is very much a, a public company person that you know, over 23 years has become a great real estate person. And I came into the business a different way. I'm I'm a real estate guy by background. Uh, and I've learned primarily from Don the, the corporate side of the business. So when there's an issue or a problem or, you know, some strategy that we need to think through, I, I think we, we each have a different angle of approach, but kind of almost always end up in the same place or, you know, end up in the same place after a healthy discussion between the two of us or, you know, with the rest of the senior team here. And it's it's been a great relationship. You know, functionally, the corporate side of our business reports up to Don. So things like, you know, our general counsel and our CFO and all the accounting and reporting that gets filed and the real estate stuff reports up through me. So development acquisitions, leasing, property management, asset management, that kind of thing. And then obviously I report to Don as well. So we kind of split the business that way. And I think, you know, that's reflected in where we came from and our and our thinking. But like I said, 99 times out of 100 or something like that, we uh, we end up in the same place and everybody gets the benefit of kind of a different way of thinking to get there, which I think is really, really cool. And it's been it's been fantastic for me, quite frankly. 
Well, I think it's, it's an excellent compliment because it gives you, you know, the corporate perspective and the real estate side. And <clears throat> sometimes they aren't always on the same page. Um, and we can get into that a little bit more in detail. <clears throat> I recently interviewed Gary Rappaport, CEO of the Rappaport Companies. And he recognized federal as the industry leader in grocery anchor retail property ownership, management, and leasing. We also discussed the impact of the pandemic on the industry and its surprisingly strong rebound with both leasing and tenant sales improving significantly since the end of the pandemic. Any thoughts on those trends, Jeff? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Gary's a legend in our business and one of the hardest working people in our business still. So he, he clearly understands the business very well, knows a lot about it and really from every aspect. So I'm glad he sees us in that light. Yeah, the pandemic, you know, the way I think about it, I guess kind of four four things came out of the pandemic. The first, and this we've seen this happen really whenever there's a major disruption. We saw this back in the financial crisis as well. But there's a flight to quality when there's a disruption, right? So the tenants that are better tenants with the better business plans, the better balance sheets. When the real estate markets get disrupted, they tend to move towards quality. And quality, not just in terms of the property and you know location, co-tenancy, all that kind of stuff, but quality in terms of who owns the property. You know, Do I have a landlord that's well capitalized? Do I have a landlord that's going to think holistically about the property and put the right tenants in and maintain it the right way and market it the right way. So I, the individual tenant, have the best chance for success. And like I said, we saw that. We saw that coming out of the GFC. We saw that coming out of the pandemic. And we've, we've you know, since uh, the pandemic was over, really, really had a lot of great tenants to choose from and put into our properties. So I would I would put that number one. Number two, uh, and I'm sure you heard this from Gary as well, but the tenants really learned through the pandemic the importance of having a store. Right? There was a lot of a lot of goods delivered early on in the pandemic when everybody was locked down for a long period of time. But as soon as we were released from our homes to go back out, the importance of a store, and even when we were locked down, the importance of a store through online pickup and store, curbside pickup, that kind of thing. It became very, very clear that if you want to make money, getting goods in people's hands, the best way to do that is with a physical store. Closely related, I think, would be number three, which is, look, you know, I think we all learned that, or maybe we're reminded that we human beings are social creatures. And when you when you force us inside and don't let us get out and do what we normally do. That's not good. So when all the restrictions about, you know, staying at home were lifted and the tenants and restaurants and movie theaters, gyms, all that stuff were allowed to reopen, there was just a flood of activity at, at, at our properties. And, you know, the, the strength of that, you know, has just been overwhelming. And it's really great to see everybody back out having dinner, having lunch, shopping, going to a movie, working out, and really enjoying being a physical, social creature, which again, we human beings are. So that was that was a, a, a big lesson learned or a big reminder maybe coming out of the pandemic. And probably the fourth 
kind of major thing we saw. And, you know, this could turn around or, you know, uh, be alleviated somewhat. I don't think it will be was people want to do as much of their daily activity as possible closer to where they live than where they work. Right. So a lot, you know, and we know our cities, the urban cores of our cities are struggling because return to office has been slow or people are working from home, you know, at least a day or two a week. So people have reorganized their lives around their homes. And most of those homes and the places we do business are in those close in, densely populated, relatively affluent suburbs where we tend to own properties and the amount of traffic, the amount of shopping during the week, the use of the property during the week, spending has really shifted out of urban cores into those close-in suburbs where, you know, the, the the bulk of federal's properties are located. And, you know, could that could that change? Maybe. I don't think it will though. So those those four things, John, were really, you know, some some big lessons learned, things reminded, uh, and observations of uh, the pandemic. And I would imagine that's pretty close to what Gary had to say. I didn't listen to his pod, but uh, I would imagine he would have uh, nailed all of those, or at least two or three of them. Yeah, he he didn't expect what you know going into it. Obviously, he didn't expect what had was what had happened. He'd never seen anything as bad as that. And he didn't, I don't think he ever expected once he was in the midst of it, how quickly it came back out and what, you know, what the repercussions were of that. But the other thing he talked about, which we may or may not get into later, is the inflationary impact of what the Fed did. And then, you know, what's impact, how that's impacted the real estate markets as far as, you know, investment opportunities, et cetera. So, and, and interest rates and everything else. So there's somewhat of a cross current there, uh, a little bit on the investment side, but we can get into that a little bit later if you'd like. Sure, um, sure. So in the meantime, I wanted to focus a little bit about you and your background. Tell us about your origins, Jeff. Youth and parental experiences. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm the one of the more unlikely guys to end up in a business like our business that's focused on uh, cities and densely populated urban areas on the coast. I grew up in a small manufacturing and agricultural town in Iowa. Really? Yeah, Newton, Iowa, 15,000 people. Wow. Former home and headquarters of the Maytag company. Oh, so okay. not where you not where you'd expect somebody to develop an affinity for open air and mixed use retail properties in cities like Boston, New York, DC, Bay Area, and LA. Um, sure. So, is that near Des Moines, or is that thirty miles thirty miles east of Des Moines on Interstate eighty? Got it. Sure. Unless they've changed the exit numbers, exit one sixty four and exit one sixty five by eighty. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, Des Moines is the home, the original home of General Girls Properties. So they were, you know, big, big retail developer, right? Yeah. And all, all that went right over my head as a teenager in uh, Newton, Iowa. <laughs> okay. So what did your folks do? What did your dad do? Yeah. So both of my parents were the first people in their families to uh, go to college. Yeah. They met at Colorado State uh, University in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh huh. 
my mom was a journalism major. My father was a biology major. And after uh, college, and they got, I think they got married while my dad was still in college, quite frankly, they got married really young. Uh, and his, uh, his first job was with a pharmaceutical company uh, that placed him in the middle of Iowa for his sales territory. He ended up working, I think, 33 or 34 years for Bristol-Myers Squibb. Oh, sure. A big chunk of that in Iowa, calling on doctors, hospitals, and pharmacies with Newton as his home base, driving around in his car. And my, my mother was a preschool teacher and then ultimately got into the paint and wallpaper and home decorating interior design world. Wow. She had her own business that she ran out of a small office in our downtown. Wow. That's so, what so my parents did. Nothing at all related really to business and nothing at all related to commercial real estate for sure. Mm-hmm. So did you go to public school there in yeah. Iowa? And yeah, then, yeah, yeah, all the way through. And we had one high school in our town, yep. 10 kids in my graduating class. But yeah, public public school all the way until I went to Colorado to go to the University of Denver, which is yeah. where I got exposed to commercial real estate. Yeah, talk about that experience. Yeah, well, so if you grow up in a town like Newton, Iowa, and you go to a place like Denver, uh, probably the last thing you want to do after your freshman year is go back to Newton, Iowa. And, you know, I certainly did did not want to do that after 11, <laughs> eight or nine months in Denver. And my parents were like, oh, hey, that's great if you want to stay in Denver for the summer. But, you know, you need to find yourself a job and pay your mm-hmm. rent and all that kind of stuff because, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to do that. You could come home and live for free, but you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's on you. So I, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I went to college, like most people that go to college these days and back then as well. So I traipsed over to the placement office at the University of Denver, and there was a posting for an internship in what was called the Data Bank in this company called Coldwell Banker. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, you know, I, I applied for that job and interviewed for that job and was one of six data bankers at the downtown Denver office of what is now CBRE hired for that summer. And I think yes. that, that was the summer of 1982. Yep. And it was, for me, life-changing. In 1982, there were 17 high-rise office buildings under construction in downtown Denver. Wow. Yeah, the place was just absolutely Oil boom. Yep. Yeah. All oil boom. Developers from all over the country and Canada putting up big buildings. And Mm -hmm. I got tapped of the six. I I got tapped to be the guy that had downtown Denver as my territory. So, you know, this was back before the day of a PC on every desk. And I get up in the morning with a suit and tie on and uh, a clipboard and go walk every floor of every high rise office building in downtown Denver and write down who the name of the tenant. And then we all convene in the office later in the afternoon and get out the yellow pages in the phone, phone book and the phone and, and call yep. those tenants and try and figure out, you know, who the decision maker was for office leasing. And then we type all that into a mainframe computer and pass any leads along we got to the sales guys in the office leasing department. So that imagine was imagine if you had Chet GPT and CoStar then. What you oh, could have exactly. done. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this, this was as basic and as brute force. <laughs> right. It, it was very educational for me because it was just, you know, incredibly uh, exciting, positive time 
to be in that business. There were guys fresh out of school, you know, that were making the princely sum of $100,000 a year as, you know, 23, 24-year-old junior brokers. Everybody had a nice car. The sales manager would uh, roll in cases of beer on Friday afternoon. And, you know, it was just a really, really fun time. So after that summer, I'm like, you know, this might be something I want to do for a career. And I didn't realize that when I enrolled at the University of Denver, when I went back in the fall and dug through the curriculum book, found that DU actually had a real estate, finance, Mm -hmm. and construction major. I believe it was the second school in the United States after University of Wisconsin to actually Mm -hmm. have a major in real estate. And, you know, that was serendipitous. So I, you know, quickly realigned my classes and my major and got my degree in real estate finance from the University of Denver because of that summer. So that was the start. Did you go every summer thereafter back to CB? No, it it was kind of a one and done type thing. I did ultimately go back and work for CB Richard Ellis a couple of years after I got out of college. They had a training program. It's called the Regional Investment Analyst Program. Yep. And so I, I did that Yeah, where you got paid a whopping $2,000 a month. Um, so 24 grand a year. And my job was to put together, you know, 10 year cash flows for the investment sales and mortgage brokers yep. in the Seattle and Bellevue offices in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, really? Portland, Salt Lake City, the couple offices in Denver, and I believe an office in Oklahoma City and Albuquerque. So I got a lot of exposure to the brokers. I looked at and worked on a lot of deals, put together a lot of what we now call offering memoranda or OMs, which back then were called sales packages. Yeah. Um, got to work on all different product types with a d- bunch of different people. And it didn't matter where I lived, really. Uh, so one summer I went and uh, lived with a couple of young brokers up in Seattle and worked in the downtown Seattle office. So that... Uh, that CB experience was uh, was really really great for me. I sat right next to the uh, the guy that ran the whole region, a gentleman by the name of George Callis, who is and probably was and probably still is a legend at CBRE back in the back in the day. So yeah, a great a great two year training program that I got a lot out of. But you and I were CB employees at the same time. Oh really? I didn't know I, that. I, I joined them in 1983. Okay, in Oakbrook, Illinois. Wow. Yeah, that and was so, a big that was a big office. We were the number two office in the country. Yep. And the yep. number one office is right here in Northern Virginia. Yep. Tyson's yep. Corner at the yep. time. So we were, I think it's like the first time in CB history that two the top two for, uh, offices were outside of California at the time. And it was just because it was so much activity in suburban Chicago and then and here in Northern Virginia. Just unbelievable at the time. So it was an interesting experience. It's, uh, Gary Beban, I sold a shopping center for him. I don't remember Gary. No, I, I absolutely remember Gary. He would uh, come and speak at some of the you know internal meetings and conferences that the investment salespeople would have. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was Gary was president, I believe, at the time. Yep, Heisman yep. Trophy winner from UCLA. He was yep. something. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Jim Didion and Gary Beban, right? Yeah, quite the guys back in the day with CBRA. Exactly. So you were there for a couple of years and then then on to you were at IT and T after that? Is that what well, so so what happened at, you know, is that the whole idea whether you're a runner for a leasing broker uh, where you made a thousand a month or you're a regional investment analyst where you made 
two thousand a month. The idea was you do that for two years and then you right. go brokerage. What happened towards the end of my two-year period was when CB was acquired by Fred Malik's group. I don't know if you remember that. That was in the late 80s, early 90s. And there was a hiring freeze. So right, I right, transitioned right. from right. training program into brokerage. I had grown a little bit tired of living in Denver at that point. You know, when I when I first started at CB in the early 80s, Denver was booming. And when I got out of school in the mid-80s, the boom had gone and it crashed. And it was just a right. really, really difficult market. It had become a little bit small for me. And I really wanted to live on the East Coast. So I moved to uh, Washington, D.C. And I, I moved to D.C. with an acceptance into the MBA program at Georgetown and an acceptance into the MBA program at George Washington University and no job and no money. <laughs> Why DC? Well, you know, it, it New York was my first choice, but you know, I, I didn't quite um, know how I would manage New York. You know, when I was in my early twenties, I really wanted to, to move to New York and live in New York, but I just couldn't figure out how to do it on my own <laughs> with no connections and yeah, really no right. no financial backing. You know, I kind of had to do everything on my own through and after college. And D.C. seemed more manageable, quite frankly. I had a girlfriend at the time who could transfer within her law firm to a Washington, D.C. office. So that made it easier. There you go. But I got I got here in the middle of uh, 1990 with no job, no money. Yeah. Tough you know, market, too. Right. And a tough market. And thank God I met Susan Karras, uh, <laughs> who was the first person in our business that I met when I came to D.C. Really? Yeah, through a guy that I used to work with that was friends with one of the Sodomblicks. And Susan right, she was at Sodomblick Goldman. Goldman. Right. So he connected me with Susan, and she gave me some great counsel and introduced me to a lot of people. And I think through that, I was able to get a job at ITT, you know, which unbeknownst to me when I was starting the interview process, also had a program where they would pay for your graduate school. So wow. that made it an easy choice for me to go to ITT because I could work during the day and, you know, then take Monday afternoon off basically and get all my classes at GW done on Mondays and in the nights. And yeah, what were you so, doing? Were you a lender or investor or what were you doing? Yeah. So ITT was like a mini GE Capital back <laughs> in those days. In fact, GE Capital bought that business from, from ITT after I left. But yeah, we were a credit company lender, you know, high loan to cost or loan to value lender. We oftentimes took a participation in a deal or points going out of a loan because most of the loans we did were, you know, transition for tran transitional properties. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot of uh, apartment uh, building finance in Texas, you know, when you could buy apartments for ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a unit and you know, they needed a little uh, lipstick and rouge and some intensive management, and they could be sold for double or triple what you paid for them in a, in a five-year period. And we took pieces of those deals. And we also did a fair amount of smaller shopping center acquisition loans, which was, you know, one of my first exposures to open-air retail. So that, that worked out really well. You know, I was able to get started working only a month or so after I moved here and able to work my way through GW at the same time. And you know, that's all how that all happened. But had it not been for Susan, you know, I, I might have never found a job and not made it through GW. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so had, CM, had CMBS even uh, unveiled at that point or, or is that before CMBS? When I, I believe it was pre-CMBS. 
That's what I thought. Or, or yeah. if CMBS had started, it was in its infancy. So in essence, the SNLs, as they were fading out, you guys kind of stepped in their shoes to some extent then, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you didn't have the quality of property, right. uh, the track record or the equity right. to get a loan from a life company and yep. you weren't willing to you know, sign on the dotted line 100% recourse with the bank, then you could come to ITT or GE Capital and yep. you know, get your loan done at 80 to 95% loan to cost. And yeah. That was our business. Yep. Now I was a mortgage banker then, so I remember talking to for anybody who could make a loan at a certain certain levels. So yeah, that was interesting. Yep. So you got your MBA in international finance at GW. So talk about why and what what the thought process there was. Well, kind of two reasons. One, I did want to do a check to make sure I was doing what I thought was you know the right career path for me and. You know, being in D.C., of course, was intrigued by, you know, all the different things that go on here, especially internationally. So that that, that was one reason. And a, a lot of the professors that taught at the graduate school at the time in that discipline, you know, worked at the World Bank or IMF or something like that. And, you know, completely different than anything else I'd been exposed to. So I wanted to learn a little bit about that. And then I didn't want to duplicate what I'd done in my undergraduate studies. Oh, sure. You know, I, under, I understood real estate and real estate finance very well at that point in time. And uh, just thought that the classes would be duplicative and not that interesting. So I wanted something related and close, but not exactly what I'd gone through at the University of Denver. So that's why. Did you consider the international investment market in real estate? Briefly. Briefly, but you know, you know what it was like in the early '90s. It was it tough. was tough. Yeah, so there was not a, an abundance of opportunities. So yeah, I, I'm sure I thought about it, that at the time and spent some time looking into it. But you know, obviously, nothing materialized. So, mm-hmm. um, so my guess is that Susan introduced you to her husband. George. She did. She is did. that correct? That's correct. That's correct. I actually, Susan and I actually did a deal together when I was at ITT. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was pretty complicated and difficult to work through. And I think that worked out really well for her client and and her and then, you know, ultimately me because she had enough confidence and, you know, my ability to do stuff to connect me with George. And George said, hey, you know, I'd love to hire you, but you got to have an MBA. And I said, well, you know, I'll be done with that in a few months. And, you know, Pretty quickly after I finished up at GW, I, I went to work for George. And, you know, he and Susan are, you know, two of our nearest and dearest friends. And, you know, I've, I've known them both now for 30 plus years and, you know, a great friendship. And, you know, obviously learned a lot about investing directly in real estate from, from George, who's, in my opinion, one of the best. Yep. I met him when I was at the Saul Company and we were in distress. And he was waiting in the wings for opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But Mr. Saul was able to struggle through by selling a couple of properties to Giant Food and save the company at the time. So it was an interesting time. Yeah. 1991. Yeah. And we, you know, look, we had a good run at, at JMB and then subsequently Heitman. And it was it was nice being in the DC office because you know, we had a bit of a, a mixed portfolio. We had office buildings, obviously, in D.C. We had some apartment buildings in Northern Virginia and also some 
grocery-anchored shopping centers in the portfolio that we ran, and you know, we're able to you know look look for and source those deals for JMB and Heitman's clients at the time, which again was great for me. I that's where I continue to develop my interest in open air retail. Um, so, so how long were you with the JMB Heitman? Uh, from from roughly the middle of 93 till close to the middle of 97. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think, I think actually it's like August of 93 through April of 97. And then, and I got recruited to come to federal in 97. Um, So you, you were at height when Heitman took over JMB portfolio in essence, you stayed here in DC. You didn't go to Chicago then. No, no, neither, neither George nor I were ever in Chicago. We traveled to Chicago a lot, but um, yeah, we were always here. See, and Jambi had a big office and a big presence through George's efforts, largely. Yeah. And so there was, you know, number of people in the office and in property management, leasing, development, that kind of thing. And yeah, it was a they had a big presence there. I didn't really understand the, the dissolution of Jambi because there was the formation of Walton Street, and then there was Heitman, and it just seemed to me that everything kind of scattered a little bit there. Could you maybe? Yeah, yeah. So. I worked for what was called JMB Institutional Realty. Right. Um, was the pension fund advisory arm of JMB. Okay. Heitman at the time was owned by United Asset Management, uh-huh. a publicly traded company that owned uh, money managers in different verticals. Um, right. And Heitman was their uh, real estate. Was their real estate vertical. Right. So through Heitman, they acquired JMB's institutional business and rolled it into Heitman. And Got I think it. that was back in, I want to say that was in late 1994. So Walton Street evolved from a different part of the company. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. And, you know, honestly, my memory on how that happened and who went where and why is not that clear anymore. But yeah, yeah my, opportunity, my opportunity was to go to Heidman and, and, and I did and, you know, enjoyed working there with more and everybody that's still at Heitman for a number of years before coming to federal. So when you came to federal, what was your role? So federal at the time had two acquisition shops, the street retail acquisitions team and the shopping center acquisitions team. And you know, I got oh, hired. Yeah. Federal was big in uh, street retail back in the mid to late nineties and had a completely separate dedicated group to buy and redevelop an asset, manage, manage and lease those properties within the company. And then they had the shopping center group as well, which Robert went and ran. And I, I worked for Robert when I first came to federal. And then he ultimately left and went on to found uh, Starwood Urban. Uh, right. And I stayed, at, I stayed at federal after Robert left and ran the, ran the East Coast shopping center acquisitions effort for federal. Oh, well, that's great. Yep. So how many properties did you buy in that? And that's that stint. How many properties did you acquire? Well, not many, because and I think you're going to get to this. There was a, a a handful, or a little bit less than a handful. I think three or four. There was a strategic shift at federal right. at that point in time, and the shift was away from acquiring existing cash flowing properties and into developing ground up mixed use properties. Um, so, for somebody who is still relatively young, new in their career. On the uh, direct investment side of the business, I really wanted to be someplace where I could, you know, do more deals and buy more stuff. So I left federal in '97 to do that and went to work for uh, Larry Horowitz at Bellsore Properties. 
So when, when you left federal the first time or the, the that time, yep. uh, Don had not joined federal at that point. He had, he had just joined actually. Oh, he just joined. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think Don had been around for three or four months. Uh, oh, really? Point. Okay. Yeah, he, he was originally hired, I believe around May of 1998 as a CFO uh, and I think I left in August of '98 or something like that. I got it. We're going back a long time now, John. You're really, you're really testing me. Well, I'm just trying to understand because Don went into quite a bit of detail as to what happened mm-hmm. um, with his predecessor and the whole transition. And you were not there at the times. It sounds like so. No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't that, you know, right when Don came in was when Steve Gutman was really right. transitioning the company to be right. a developer of uh, mixed-use properties, largely based on Steve's vision as it related to you know, retailers wanting to get out of malls and closer to people onto the streets, mm-hmm. which is why Federal got into the street retail investing business a few years earlier in the early to mid-90s. And then, of course, with the success of Bethesda Row, um, you know, Steve saw an opportunity to basically take that model and, you know, take it to other cities around the country. And that's, you know, where the focus of the company was. And that's where capital was directed at that point in time. And, you know, somebody in the old line of business, uh, the shopping center acquisition side of the business, you know, I thought it would be best if I went somewhere where I could get a little bit more transaction activity and experience doing mm-hmm. deals and doing direct investment in real estate. So, yeah, I left shortly thereafter. So then you went on to Velsor. Talk about yep. that experience. Well, yeah, you know, George and Susan introduced me to Larry. I'm sure you know Larry. Great, great real estate mind. And he saw an opportunity. Give us a little background on Larry here. Well, you know, Larry's Larry's been in the real estate business for a very long time and has a very, very good big picture real estate investment mind and just incredible savvy deal acumen. And he'd been buying and developing warehouses in Florida, in and around Miami and in and around Tampa. And he saw an opportunity at that time in the late 90s to basically you know, bring that investment strategy up to Northern Virginia and started buying industrial flex and smaller office buildings in and around Dulles Airport. Uh, There was just tremendous activity in Miami, particularly around Miami National Airport with all the goods that were coming in, not only directly, yeah, on, on transport planes, but effectively goods being transported in the belly of passenger planes. And it really drove the real estate market and demand for space around the airport and you know larry again has great vision and saw that opportunity in northern virginia good friend of george and susan's i'd known larry a little bit before i started working for him but you know went to work with with him and uh his wife beth and a small team that they had to basically build a base uh, of properties in northern virginia so i did that for a couple of years and you know larry was very active i think while I was there, he bought like 18 buildings in 18 months or something like that. And, you know, the uh, the market was starting to cool off a little bit. You know, cap rates were starting to go down. It was starting to get a little bit more competitive, a little bit harder to do deals. And about that time, Steve and Don knocked on my door and said, hey, do you want to come back to federal? We'd like you to come back in a different role. And, you know, that's how I ended up coming back to federal. But I had a great experience working with Larry and uh 
you know, truly one of the one of the great real estate mines in in DC. So why did you go back? I mean, why well, did you stay since you were having such a good time with with Larry? Well, the opportunity to come back to to federal again was was on a bit of a different route. So, you know, Don and Steve asked me to come back to work closely with Don to reset the strategy of the company. We've gone down the path of of doing right. development and had teed up a number of deals. And, you know, largely because of the size of the investment in Santana Row out in San Jose relative to the size of the company, you know, that wasn't exactly well received by the equity markets. So, you know, needed to, you know, needed to reset the course for the company. So Don and I spent, you know, a year or so, maybe it was a little bit longer than that, kind of working through where we thought we fit in the public markets. Uh, and what we what we thought the opportunities were to you know reset the direction of the company and you know when you looked across the publicly traded shopping center group at that point in time and you set all the mixed use and street retail stuff aside and just looked at federal shopping centers they were on many different metrics far and away better than the competition so the decision was relatively straightforward that we need to get back into what we've been doing for years, which was acquiring and redeveloping larger, older shopping centers in close in, densely populated, and usually affluent communities in our target markets or core markets on the East Coast and in California. And that's what we did. And I think that was about 2002 or three when we formally, you know, reintroduced that strategy and started buying, started buying and redeveloping shopping centers again. Yeah, Don went into quite a bit of detail about that. And then his thought was he wanted to bring balance back to the portfolio. Right. He used that word several times. He probably yep. still does. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, believe me, uh, all of us who work at Federal Realty have heard balance about <laughs> 359 million times. So, you know, it's, it's, it was absolutely the right thing to do. I mean, clearly, when you're, when you're developing a property, you're taking all kinds of risks, right? And you can do a little bit of that in a public company, but it needs to be balanced with uh, a portfolio of existing cash flowing properties. And again, we really like, and I know you know this, but we really like buying larger, older centers that we can apply our leasing management and redevelopment skills to. We have great teams that do that and great teams that know how to market those properties and asset manage those properties and improve the merchandise mix over time and, you know, help the tenants do better sales so can, they can afford to pay higher rents. And that's, you know, really, really been the, the model here of Federal Realty for now a long time. But we we needed to get back to that and balance the ground up development risk with existing cash flowing real estate. So that's why we did that. And yet at the same yeah, time. And it's been a great, it's been a great run. Yet at the same time, you continue with some development activity that's pretty interesting and cutting edge too. So absolutely and that's you're balancing the the steady as she goes with a little bit of risk. Right. And so Pike and Rose was certainly a big risk when you guys jumped into that deal. And then of course Santana Row, um in essence, you were brought in as a fireman for that one. Well, they, more, in more ways than one. <laughs> not, 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 not really, actually. I, you know, I moved to California. <laughs> I moved to California in early 2004 after Santana Row was already up and running. And the main reason I moved out there really for two reasons. One, okay. is, 
Yeah, one is we really only had one senior person in the company on the West Coast, uh, uh-huh. a guy by the name of Jan Sweetnam, who is still with us. He's our chief investment officer, sit right next to him and have for the last you know 19 plus years. Uh, while I've been in California, a great, great partner and one of the you know great team members here at, at, at Federal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jan was all by himself out in California. So he needed he needed somebody up here, you know, to bounce ideas off and solve problems with and you know celebrate with and commiserate with, depending on what was going on at the time. So that was one Santana of Santana Row was a major issue for you guys, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. And then, you know, the second reason I went out there, John, is we we wanted to grow the company and we yeah. wanted to grow right. in California. And I'd been working, let's call it the DC to Boston corridor for you know, either lending or direct equity investing in real estate for a long time. I knew the markets, I knew the players, and it was much easier for me to focus on growing the company, even on the East Coast, from the West Coast, than it was to try and grow the West Coast that I didn't know at all from the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So that's the second reason I moved out there. But I, I understand. Was, yeah, I was I was not sent out there to to fix Santana Row, if you will. I mean, we had a, okay. good, a good team on the ground that, you know, needed some support occasionally day to day. I was not the fireman. Okay. Okay. Even though there was a fire physically on the property. So <laughs> yeah, there was there was a fire in uh, August of two thousand two. You're right. You're right. I yeah. didn't show up until two thousand four. Got it. Okay. Now I understand. So let's turn to your current role. Yep. Um you're promoted to president right before the pandemic in twenty nineteen and remained on the rest west coast. How has that transition gone with the challenges the pandemic inflicted? We may have covered this before, but, you know, give me a little bit more perspective from your standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. So my job now is is effectively to manage real estate functions for federal realty on, on both coasts. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have a great team set up to do that. Wendy Sear, who's been a federal for a long time, is a president of the East Coast. You probably know Wendy. She's great. Yeah, she's great. She has a great team of asset managers and leasing people that that report up to her and just do a fantastic job with our 80 or so properties on the West Coast. And then she has a counterpart uh, on the East Coast. She has a counterpart on the West Coast by the name of Jeff Kreshek, who's worked with Federal for a long time as an employee and even longer as a, a partner of Federal's when he was at CIM. So, oh, uh, sure. Yeah, very experienced real estate professional like Wendy, a leasing background. So Wendy and Jeff on the operation side, Jan on the investment side, that's that's my my core team for the bulk of the portfolio. And you know, the pandemic was pandemic was something else for us to work through. And it really was all hands effort here at Federal Realty. And Don did a really good job leading us through that. You know, if you look for silver linings and clouds, I think one of the things that the pandemic did for us was, you know, made us all work together more closely than we were pre-pandemic. During the pandemic, we were getting, you know, 15, 16 people on the phone every day to talk about what was going on. And then, you know, on the West Coast, we had a separate group of people that got together every afternoon to talk through what's happening with the tenants and how to help them resolve their issues, how how to get them to pay us. And, you know, pandemic's been long over and we don't get together every day and we haven't gotten together for every day for a long time, but we still get together every week. And it's what? a really good way to make sure everybody at the company that, that has influence is understanding everything that's going on at the company. So 
what percentage of the of your tenant base had to renegotiate their leases? Just out of curiosity. You know, I can I can ask somebody with better memory than me. You know, there might be some scar tissue there, but it was it was high. And yeah. you know, we we viewed the pandemic as something that we would get through. And what we were trying to do was make sure that when we got to the other side of the pandemic, that we were, we and the properties were in the best possible shape, right? So we made a real effort to uh, have those tenants that could afford to pay us continue to pay us. And those that couldn't, we tried to work out some sort of creative deal with them where they would stay in business and then, you know, ultimately pay back some or all of, of the relief we gave them. And, uh, yeah, we did a really big program with a lot of our restaurants to help them through. And it was, sure. it was, you know, prescient, if you will, to make those decisions at that point in time, because when, uh, when the stay at home rules were lifted and, you know, like Gary said, and like I said, a few minutes ago, that rush of people came back to the properties, our, our tenants were set up and ready to go and ready to capitalize on that business as opposed to, you know, us having a bunch of dark restaurants and dark storefronts. So that was really, you know, a really important focus of ours in the depth of the uh, pandemic in, in 2020. And in hindsight, it worked out well. Happy that we took the approach that we took, but it was very, very hands-on. Property managers, leasing agents, asset managers, all of us on the senior team, you know, working through every imaginable circumstance you could think of. And then, you know, the back office of federal, you know, the people that have to redraft those leases or amend those leases and then administer those those redrafts. You know, that was a big ask of them as well. And everybody here stood tall and carried the weight and uh, got through that. And, you know, we're in hindsight, very thankful for that. One, one thing Don, I know is very proud of is the idea that you were able to keep your dividends not only firm, but continue to increase yes. throughout the pandemic, which yes. was pretty impressive. Yes. Uh, probably the only REIT in the country that was able to do that, I'm guessing. Well, I think there were others. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but there, if there were others, there weren't many others. But yeah, we and Don in particular view that as, you know, kind of a, a contract, if you will, with our shareholders that is an important part of the reason they bought our stock in the first place. And we were going to do everything in our power to make sure we lived up to our end of the bargain. So that that was important. And it does separate us, John. I mean, look at 56 years of consecutive annual dividend increases is pretty impressive. And there's not one else does it. No there's, one else well, there's nobody that. else. In, there's nobody else in the publicly traded real estate sector that does that. And when you look through all publicly traded companies, we're we're in some really, really good company, and very, very proud of that record. Mm-hmm. That's great. Since you moved to California, what markets have you seen adding most to Federal's Western strategy, and why? Do you do you notice differences among consumers and tenants in the West as opposed to the East Coast markets? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, I, I would. I would say there are. There are probably some differences. They're they're subtle. Taking the last part of your question first, there, but they're subtle. You know, I think in in the markets we're in, most people want to gravitate to the same types of things. Of course, you know, Federal's long had a strategy in our in our food, the food side of our business, to lease to strong local and regional operators. Right. To, 
you know, make the properties unique and exciting and, and give people a reason to continue to come back. So you won't see a lot of crossover, obviously, in the restaurant base with our portfolio because we, we really are trying to support and grow the strong local and, and regional operators. But a lot of the other um, categories, you, you see some similarities in the merchandising. Yeah, we, we've grown quite a bit in Los Angeles which started, I think, in 2012 when we bought Plaza El Segundo, and then in 2015 when we developed The Point, which is right next to Plaza El Segundo. We bought the bulk of the land for The Point when we bought Plaza El Segundo. So that's a big property and our kind of the anchor property, if you will, in, in LA for us. And then in 2017, we recapitalized and formed a joint venture with Prime Store, which is a Los Angeles-based owner developer of high quality retail properties and largely Latino communities in Southern California. So that transaction added, I think, close to 1.7 million square feet to our Southern California portfolio, which was big. And then most recently, and I think we closed our first deal in June of 2021, we've moved into the Metro Phoenix market. So Phoenix, Scottsdale, Chandler, and I think we've invested somewhere between 350 and 400 million dollars in uh, that market in the last couple of years, which we really like. We see great growth prospects in Greater Phoenix, largely driven by the universities there. There's over 100,000 uh, college students in Metro Phoenix, and mm-hmm. what we learned when we were doing our due diligence and market research is a very high percentage of those students stay in that market after they graduate. So That's interesting. Yeah, there's a fantastic labor pool in. Well, ASU is the largest. I think it's the largest under, undergraduate campus in the country. It is. They have close to 100,000 students there. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And, and, and something like you know, 75, 80% of the kids that graduate every year from the Phoenix area colleges stay. So interesting. Yeah. So if you look at some of the tech businesses that have moved to that market, certainly the chip manufacturing industry that's in that market. A lot of the reasons they've gravitated towards it is there's just a very, very good labor pool. So that along with, you know, look at you back up 20 years or so ago, and we we always said, well, we don't want to be in Phoenix because it's growing horizontally, right? So, you know, every time there's growth, a new shopping center gets built and a new apartment yeah. and a new mall. It's a sprawling city. Not God. anymore. Not anymore. Really? Uh, and, and what we noticed, and you know, if you go to that market and you look around the properties that we own, the areas in that market where we've invested, what's happening now is there's no place to grow horizontally and it's starting to grow vertically. So is it the mountains that protect the you know the growth. Yeah, there, there's 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 some geographic boundaries. Yeah. There's some uh, Native American reservations. Ah. Uh, yeah. boundaries sure the, the availability of water in certain yes. parts of the utilities are an issue there will create a bound uh, a boundary yep. and what we what we saw when we you know really dug into the market three or four years ago was you know a single story shopping center with a parking lot in front of it built at a 0.25 far was likely not the highest and best use of land anymore right so oh. you're seeing Classy office buildings, smaller shopping centers, freestanding restaurants, getting torn down in apartment buildings and uh, uh, going going vertical and getting built. And to me, you know, as a long-term owner of real estate, that's how we look at real estate here at Federal. We 
we think we're going to own it indefinitely. That's that's exactly what you want to see, because that means the piece of land you're buying that's built to a 0.25 FAR is likely not the highest and best use of that land over time. And as leases expire and as you're able to rework the property, you can either add density or you're likely to have uh, less supply in the market and you can really push rents or both. And that's how we like to invest. So that market we're really excited about and yeah, one of the big growth avenues for us in the West Coast. So you're in LA, you're in Phoenix, you're in San Francisco area. Are, are you in San, Di- San Diego as well? Yeah, and it looks in the Bay Area, we're really in Silicon Valley. We're not in, oh, you're, you're not in the city. No, no. We had one property there for a number of years, which we sold a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so the bulk of our holdings are in Silicon Valley. We're in you're LA. not in Marin or no east east bay we are in the east bay we own we own a couple of properties in the east bay we own a very very uh Mm -hmm. infill power center um that's partially in emeryville and partially in oakland with home depot oh sure safeway target north track ulta yeah it's and the retailers are very very productive we own a grocery anchored center in san ramon which is kind of the next ring to the east if you will right but otherwise, right. otherwise, everything we own in the Bay Area is in Silicon Valley. We've grown our portfolio fairly significantly in LA. And then if you go down to San Diego, we added a property a couple of years ago called Grossmont Center that's in La Mesa out in the east part of San Diego. That, that's interesting. Well, it's, it's one of the most fascinating real estate deals I've ever done. It's, it's a huge site. It's right on I-8. At an interchange, yeah, at an interchange with a heavily uh, traveled highway, it's sixty some acres, a million square feet, with only a couple of exceptions. All the leases expire in twenty twenty five. Ooh! So it's a huge redevelopment opportunity for us. Oh my god! And we're not, you know, it's not going to be the Santana Road of San Diego by any means. We're not going to go uh, vertical likely there in this development cycle, but we are going to be able to transform the property and, you know, completely change the rent roll and really. What's your tenant demand there? It's strong. strong? Yeah, very strong. So uh, you have, are you going to be like a congressional type of layout or what's the thought process there? Just yeah, I know it'll be, it'll be, it'll be bigger and different than that. There's a very productive Walmart on the site. There's a very, uh, there you, go. Um, you know, we'd like to see them stay long term. And there's some other. I don't see federal there. having Walmart on many of their centers. That doesn't strike me as the demographic you're aiming at there. Well, you know what we like? <laughs> you know what we like is we, we like a lot of people that come yeah. and spend a lot of money. And yeah. Okay. We do here in, in, you know, spades. It's really, really a strong location and going to be a, a nice growth vehicle for us over the next two, three, four years as we, we work through the expiration of those leases. So that's, think, that's where we are yeah. in California. When I think of your strategy, I always think if you're going to go down to that market, I would want to be in La Jolla. I'd want to be in, you know, Rancho Santa Fe. You know, places like that where the demographics are such that, hey, here we go. You know, this is federal country. So, yeah. Well, it's federal company. It's federal country in terms of uh, population density and traffic and ability to rework a rent roll, right? I think the average rent at the property is in the low to mid teens and Ah. probably more than double that. So, 
Yeah. So there's your real estate hat coming on and That's saying, right. come on. You know. And we'll, we'll federalize it. It will be a much better place. Uh, <laughs> when we're done. That's for sure. So an analogy to that, maybe, is two properties that I looked at by a guy with the name of Sam Redstone, I think his name was, down in Mount Vernon, Virginia, which is, you know, right on Route 1. And you guys acquired, there was two centers. I don't think they were both owned by them. It was two different ownerships, but you guys combined the centers. Talk about that deal a little bit, that Mount Vernon Plaza. Yeah, well, that's a good deal to bring up for a handful of reasons. You know, one, you know, if you dial back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago and getting back to the strategy of acquiring and redeveloping um, well-located shopping centers at you know, need some investment and need our merchandising and leasing skills. That was the first center, or, or actually, you're right. It was two different centers, two different owners. That was mm-hmm. the first deal that we did after we reset that strategy. Ah, okay. So it was hugely important from that standpoint, and then it was probably one of the most uh, complicated and fascinating deals that I've ever had the opportunity to work on. I think so, I talked to you about financing it at one point. Yeah, you may you may have because so, you guys weren't trying to figure your strategy out at the time, and even looking at third party financing, and you weren't sure what you were going to do, as I recall. But, right, but we knew it was we knew it was a great piece of real estate. Right, uh, and we you know here are the elements we had to pull together there. So uh, the land was owned by a couple of families that are maybe it was three or four families in Canada, and uh-huh. we, we had to rework the ground lease. Right, right. Uh, ground lease under Mount Vernon Plaza. We had to deal with the seller of Mount Vernon Plaza. You probably don't remember, but at the back of the center on the Mount Vernon side of the line, Plaza side of the line, was an old Ames store. Right. I remember that. And one of our yeah. public peers had acquired that chain of stores and our leases. Uh-huh. So we had to figure out a way to get control of that lease while we were doing the acquisition without anybody knowing that it was us getting control of the list. <laughs> and then we had to buy, then we had to buy at the time what was called South Valley, which is right. the south side of the parking lot. That property was owned by the real estate investment arm of a large insurance company. And, you know, I basically had to coordinate pulling all these various pieces together at the same time because we didn't want to have one without the other. And we certainly didn't want to uh, own Mount Vernon with a name store in the back that was controlled by one of no. our editors. So uh, yeah, that was, that was quite the deal to pull together. And uh, you know, a lot of moving parts. I remember sitting in my office at Congressional Plaza on Christmas Eve and talking with the gentleman that ran the real estate investment arm of the life insurance company that controlled South Valley and having him telling me we had no deal. Oh my goodness. He killed the deal on Christmas Eve. Oh. And then on oh. New Year's Eve, a short week later, three or four in the afternoon, I'm back in the office on the phone with him again, putting the deal back together. So it was, you know, it was a hairy deal, but we were able to get everything sewn together and, you know, pretty much simultaneously close the ground lease modified, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, fast forward, we're effectively 20 years later, we own the fee interest in the land. We've redeveloped the center. We added a fair amount of GLA and it's, you right. know, one of the, one of the 
shining stars, if you will, in our Northern Virginia portfolio. We're really, really happy to have it. Uh, it's been a been a great property for us. But it was it was a it was a fine line to walk at the time. That's for sure. And I could not, you know, I could not let it fail. We we had to get that deal done. That put us back on the map of being back in the business of acquiring and redeveloping shopping centers. So it was absolutely critical that that happened. But it was an interesting. Let's let's go back to the roots of federal for just a moment because sure. I grew I moved here in 1985. Okay, and federal at that point was about 20 years old. So you know it was you know it, it was a fairly mature shopping center company it owned maybe four or five centers in Montgomery County, and it started out apparently as I as Don had recited was a residential REIT initially it was a, they owned apartments. Got right. into retail. The first shopping center they, they acquired apparently was at the time a CBS anchored center on Old Georgetown Road, known as Wildwood Plaza, which I think was the first center that Federal had. And I shopped there when I first moved here, and I thought it was the coolest center I'd ever seen. Well, uh, hopefully you still shop there, John. And I, I do occasionally. Yeah, I, when I really want to go upscale on, on groceries, I'll go <laughs> over there to Balducci's and. We'll we'll poke around there a little bit, find something interesting. But that center and then Congressional and then Federal Plaza, which is where Trader Joe's is now. And and then, you know, of course, the predecessor to where what Pike and Rose is now, which was a Toys R Us anchored center, which I think its name, I do not remember that center. Well, you can't. Well, first off, I'll give you the name in a second, but you can't forget G Street Fabrics. Oh yeah, that, I remember that. That center and was La Madeleine was in there, and, and yeah. it was called Mid Pike Plaza. Mid Pike Plaza, that's correct. And yep. it also had a big, what was it? A big landscape deal or something that was off to the side as you face the property to the east. I, I can't or to the north. I mean, I can't remember what it was, but all kinds of stuff there. Yeah, on, on, on site. Wasn't it a bus depot there of some sort too, or something? Yeah, they, the county owns some land on the north coast. <laughs> that's, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. So the 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 visual of the property, if that hasn't been the most transformative piece of real estate in Montgomery County, I would say that I, I don't know if there is another one other than the inverse of that of what happened to White Flint Mall. Right. So if you want to look at two completely contrasting situations over the last twenty years. Is the White Flint Mall site and Pike and Rose. So there's an interesting backdrop to a story. Go ahead yeah, there. For sure. And we're we're really proud of what we've done at Pike and Rose. It's uh you know, it's a fantastic property and you know, every every day or week or year or whatever that we we operated and invest in it, it, it just gets better. The uh, the food lineup here is fantastic. We have you know, some exciting new uh, new restaurant coming into the 915 meeting office building that's just getting finished and starting to have its first tenants build out and move in. So it's only going to get better over time. It's a fantastic location, as you know. And So was, was that property of Steve Gutman vision initially, or was that something that came after his departure? Yeah, it came after Steve's uh, departure. Um, you know, the way we got into that asset, uh, we master lease that property along with, I think, six other properties in uh, New Jersey and one on Long Island uh, from a family based in uh, northern New Jersey. 
Really? It was another deal. Another deal that we had to do, I think it was back in 2007, we had to make a deal with that family to unwind the, the master leases. And effectively, what we ended up doing was trading them our interest in four or five of the shopping centers for their interest in Midpike and a property uh, on Long Island, or we're just wrapping up a redevelopment. I'll come back to that in a minute for their interest. So that allowed us to control the fee at Midpike. Hmm. Which is what allowed us to go into the county and you know, rezone and re-entitle the property. I think Midpike had roughly three hundred thousand square feet of retail on roughly twenty acres, and mm-hmm. you know, we've got now you know three million square feet of entitlements on that same twenty acres. So, uh, yeah, it's worked out well for us, and you know, clearly something we've been working on for a long time. But we think it's a great, great addition to the community, a beacon, if you will, in Southern Montgomery County, and again, really proud of the effort that team here has put into it but that was a you know post steve gutman effort by by the team here Mm -hmm. so evan goldman who i think was the first project manager on the project gave me a tour when they just the site plan was just being finished and just starting to clear dirt there and i said wow evan this is exciting and then he showed me the renderings and i I was like whoa this is going to be really special yeah at the time Well, you know, whether it's Pike and Rose or Bethesda Row, Assembly Row, Santana Row, you know, which we affectionately refer to here as the big four, there are big mixed-use properties. You know, all of those, all those properties are, you know, local landmarks, if you will. They are a big part of the communities in which they're located. You know, we hope that the people that, that live in each of those communities use the property if not daily, weekly for all different kinds of things. And they've been very, very well accepted and woven into the communities that surround them. And, you know, they all have future phases. And we're nearing the end of that in Bethesda because we started it, you know, over 25 years ago. But there's still a lot to do at Pike and Rose, a lot to do at Santana Row, and a lot to do at our Assembly Row project up in Somerville, Massachusetts. So, you know, over time, they're only going to get better and better each time we build a building. It seems to change the nature of the, the property a little bit. It brings more people. It makes it feel like more of a complete neighborhood. And, uh, you know, we're just really happy to have those. And, you know, it's one of the things that differentiates Federal from all the other publicly traded shopping center companies. Nobody else has assets like that or the skill set to conceive of them, develop them, and then operate them. So it's a real, real differentiator for us, John. What, you know, one question I want to get into philosophically is it's clear that there is a special ambiance and almost, you know, and I'll start with Wildwood when I went there the first time. There's an ambiance to a federal property and it's something that is hard to explain, but you know, maybe it's signage, maybe it's, you know, the sense of place, the thought process going into the traffic pattern, the both pedestrian and, and vehicular, uh, the access points, and then the storefronts. I mean, there's, there's a, there's the physical side, but there's something more to that. So maybe you can speak to that a little bit if you know what I'm saying, Jeff. Yeah, I do. And, you know, maybe let's step back or go up. 10 or 20,000 feet and let me tell you kind of where the the thinking comes from there. So our goal or what we endeavor to do when you come to a federal realty property is have a great experience. 
we don't want to be a commodity um, experience. We don't want to be just a transaction, right? If you want to do just a transaction, there's probably a more efficient way to do it, right? But we, we want you to, whether it's Wildwood or whether it's one of our more traditional neighborhood grocery anchored centers or one of the big four, we want you when you're at a federal realty property to have a special experience. So clean, safe, convenient, great landscaping, like you said, great signage, a lot of places outdoors to sit down and have a cup of coffee or or something to eat or maybe a cocktail after work. We want to be part of your life and part of the community. That's the goal. So that's why we put a lot of extra time and effort into thinking about things like signage and storefronts and paint colors and landscaping and maintenance of the property. And it all comes from this core belief. And it's, you know, quite frankly, more of an art than a science that if you put together the right retailers and the right businesses and the right restaurants, you create this synergy. It's better for everybody that's leasing space and doing business at that property. They're more successful as a whole, and it's a better experience for the customers that come. So the customers will come more frequently, and when they're there, they'll spend more time. And when they spend more time, they spend more money. And that's great for the that's great for the tenants. It's great for us. And yeah, it really makes the place feel like your center and part of your community, not just someplace you go to conduct a transaction. And that's that's really the goal. Another example of a growth trend is economic development. Northern Virginia seems to be accelerating why DC and Maryland are stagnating. How does this impact your investment strategies going forward in this region? Perhaps overlay that on other metropolitan areas where you invest. Yeah, I mean, look, at uh, we, we long-term need to be in places where employment and incomes are growing, right? right? And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of talk about people racing to the Sun Belt and, you know, going to this small city, that small city and all this population growth and gee, isn't that great. And we've always thought that, yeah, well, population growth is important, but a lot of times if population growth is an area with a lot of land that hasn't been developed, that also means a lot of new supply. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is in, in many ways a very simple business. It's a difficult to execute business, but a very simple business. It's it's all about supply and demand, right? And we want to be in areas where uh, there's a lot of demand and where new supply one way or the other, either because all the land is already built out or politi- politically, it's very difficult to get entitlements and build new product where supply is in check, right? And so, you know, whether it's Northern Virginia or Montgomery County or Metro Phoenix or Silicon Valley, you know, there's a lot of different things that drive the two parts of that, those equations in each of those markets. I can't really point my finger at one or the other and say it's better because of this or better because of that. There's a lot of things we have to take into account when we think through that. But, you know, that's what we're looking for when we invest capital. And when, when you, when you think that way and you think long term and, and you're in areas where income growth is materially outstripping inflation, then you have the ability to have your businesses that are located in your properties, your tenants, do better and they can pay more rent and you can add value to the property faster. It's really the investment philosophy here. 
Is federal in the southeast at all? I, I'm trying to remember. We're, where we're in we're, we're in South Florida. Okay, so you're yeah. down what Lauderdale or Miami or? Yeah, we have a big property in Davie called Tower Shops. We just brought bought the shops at Pembroke Gardens out west on 75, and then we have a smaller center called Delmar Village in Broward, and we just redeveloped Cocoa Walk in Coconut Grove, and that's a, a fantastic property. A good example of a property that's, you know, benefited from what we talked about several minutes ago, which is people wanting to conduct more of their daily lives closer to where they live as opposed to where they work. Coconut right. Grove is just a fabulous community. You know, if I was ever to to relocate to the Miami area, I wouldn't think about living in any place else other than Coconut <laughs> Grove. It's just, it's beautiful. There's great schools. And, you know, we own the biggest and best property right in the heart of the city called nice. Coconut yeah, and complete redevelopment. We tore down a big chunk of the yep. retail space and rebuilt more functional retail space with a Class A office above it, and redid the rest of the uh, the, the retail that was left and remerchandised it. Brought in some great restaurants, and it's just you know again really the heart of the community, and that's that's what we're looking to do when we when we redevelop real estate. Well, let me talk about some other markets. So I think of Atlanta as being a market that. You- that you guys should be in, probably, if you're not. <laughs> uh, Charlotte, Raleigh-Durham, uh, Charleston, maybe. I don't know. You're in Charlottesville, which is interesting because my son went to UVA. And I was, first time I went down there to visit, I said, whoa, this is Federal Realty owns this property. I said, this is interesting. So I wonder how that happened. So it was interesting. Uh, I'll leave that at that. Well, those, those are all great markets. The The thing we have to think about when we think about going into a mar- new market like that is, you know, can we build over time enough of a portfolio to actually be an influential player in the market? It's not a single property strategy. You want it. This yeah. is a market strategy. Right. Yeah. Right. right. So. You know, not only does there need to be enough of the type of properties that we want to own, but they need to be owned by people that we ultimately think we can buy from. Got it. So we are very careful about that. And the three you mentioned, I, you know, Charleston might be a little small for us, but the, the other three you mentioned, yeah, are great markets. And, you know, we've just not been able to figure out a way to efficiently and strategically get into those markets. Mm-hmm. We like the ones we're in. But we still think we have plenty Got of it. markets. Sure. But you will see us from time to time, like Phoenix had a new market. But that was very strategic for us. And we went in in a fairly big way, buying one of the bigger, better shopping centers right in the middle of Phoenix. And we've bolted on to that since that first acquisition. And, you know, like I said, I'm close to $4 million, $400 million worth of property there now. Um, so we've got to be able to see our way clear to that to, to go into a new market. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And that matters from an operational standpoint and, you know, being able to hire a team or to hire a team that can really, you know, run the property the way we like to see properties run. And it also, you know, we want to be able to be a first stop for tenants when they're coming into the market. And if you only have one or two centers to offer them or they're smaller or, you know, insignificant, you don't have that. And, you know, we don't think that's the best way to go about expanding into a market. So with Charlottesville, you kind of coupled that in with your DC portfolio, I assume. That is yeah, it. and it is it is by far and away the dominant shopping center in Charlottesville. So, and we've we've had that in the portfolio for a very long time. Right. 
great asset. And I hope well, your son was at UVA. You spent a bunch of money at Barracks, right? Oh, I, we had a good time there. Good. Yeah, good restaurants. Go yep. Oh, yeah. So, uh, inflation and interest rates have risen considerably over the past year. Plus, how has federal adapted to the capital markets changes? Have rents kept up with expenditures in your portfolio? Have you caught up with the collections that you were deferred during the pandemic? Yeah, to answer the last part of your question, yes. I mean, collections have gone very well for us coming out of the pandemic. And, you know, we've we've had an effort here for a long time to make sure that we're getting rent bumps during the terms of our leases that help us keep up with inflation. So that's been a focus of ours for a long time. I would say when you know, the handwriting was on the wall that inflation was going to kick back up again. We spent a lot of the time with our leasing people explaining to them the, the importance of getting bumps during the term of a lease and showing them why that's essential to growing the value of our properties. And our leasing team has done a fantastic job delivering not only good starting rents for us, but also growth during the term of the lease, which has helped us to deal with the inflationary period we're in right now. If you step back and look at us and our public peers, federal has you know significantly higher built-in rent growth in its existing leases when compared to anybody else. So always been a focus of ours, but uh, definitely heightened or sharpened by the, the environment we're in right now. And then you know obviously everybody's dealing with this higher interest rate environment that you know is even higher today than it was last week, right? I mean we're in a we're in a pretty tough cycle right now. So that's caused us to, you know, refocus on how we allocate capital and, you know, raise hurdles for in in investing new capital, whether that be in a development or an acquisition. And I think, you know, that's just going to be part of our business for a while. I don't think anybody here expects the rates to go back to what they were. Hopefully they'll be lower when the Fed stops raising rates and, you know, the market settles down a little bit and we get into a more normal interest rate environment. But yeah been watching that and you know to a degree expecting it for a while and making the appropriate adjustments. sales sales been affected by interest rate growth i mean uh I, we haven't seen it yet and that's again john you gotta you know if you you know our assets locally and if you go to any other market where we're located we're in similar type areas and you know generally the people that frequent our shopping centers are not financially stressed so they're able right. to doing what they were doing before interest rates ticked up. So yep. we've seen a really nice response in tenant sales at our properties the last couple of years and you know, traffic's up as well. So I think everybody's been able to work through it. Maybe not the you know, maybe not the case in smaller markets or yeah. you know, further out suburbs or, you know, certain parts of the country, but you know, where we've where we've elected to invest our money and, and and deploy our capital, we've generally got a lot of people that that make good incomes around each property, and you know people are still spending and you know working through the inflationary environment. New recent guests, including Gary Rappaport and Art Fusillo of Lerner, have discussed the decline of the regional mall business. Federal has benefited from not entering that space as well. How do you see the inordinate amount of regional mall and big box inventory being repurposed? Is there any opportunity for federal to get involved in, in those assets, potentially? Yeah, just to clarify, I assume you're talking about the anchor boxes at malls and not big boxes yes. in general, because the big box part of our business, the leasing is very, very strong. And I think that's 
you know, true throughout the public peer group. Anchor occupancies at, at our properties are very high. I, I guess let me clarify, big box, in my opinion, is mm-hmm. less than 10% shop space and the rest is big, it's big you know, 150 to 100 to 150,000 square foot boxes. Yeah, it's like a department store at a, at a mall or something like that. Right, but very little inline space. Yeah, yeah. Which I've uh, not seen at your any of your properties. No, yeah. that's that's not what we, what right. we own or endeavor right. to, endeavor to go after. And right, you know, uh, look at the, the 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 A or A plus malls in this country are doing exceptionally well, and uh, they've all been able to uh, deal with the shrinking uh, department store footprint uh, and brought in different uses to those department store boxes where the department stores left, you know, whether they're retail or entertainment. So I think at the better malls, uh, that's gone just fine. And, you know, in a lot of cases, I would expect even more productive use of the space than the department store that was in the space just prior, right? So you may have had a department store move out and that box got cut up into two or three different spaces for retailers, restaurants, and entertainment. And I would guess the redo of those boxes are drawing a lot more traffic to the malls than the department store was prior. You know, we're still overbuilt, like you said, with, with malls or under demolished. Uh, yeah. That's probably the other good way to say it. And mm-hmm. you know, no, we're not in that business. I don't see us getting into that business. We know in, in our markets where we want to invest, you know, what those malls are. And generally none of them have uh, appealed to us to acquire. You know, we always keep our eye open for stuff, but that's that's not really a path we've chosen to walk down. Mm-hmm. What new concepts have you seen in the entertainment-oriented retail, including food and recreational uses? Your Bark Social here at Park Pike and Rose is one example. Any others? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, bar- everybody loves Bark Social, right? And <laughs> what's not to like about uh, dogs, beer, and coffee? And there you go. It's a great company. <laughs> we're happy to have them here. Similarly, up at Assembly Row, on one of the future development sites, uh, our team up there did something really creative, and they brought in Volo. Are you familiar with Volo? No. no. So, so Volo is an organization that effectively arranges sports games for, oh. I think, primarily people in their 20s and 30s. And they built a bunch of sand volleyball courts and pickleball. Oh, cool. And then our team also got one of the local craft brewers to set up shop next door. So, you know, I think it's Tuesday and Thursday nights. If you go to Assembly Row, there's something like five or 600 people engaged in their Volo activities of the property. And then they hang around and have a beer. And I'm sure they walk down the street and go to another bar or restaurant at Assembly Row. So, so how does the federal get paid for that? Just out of curiosity, what do you, what's the deal? Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's not a robust economic return from from. <laughs> But you want the say? ancillary behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> uh, another five or 600 people at the property twice. Right. And, and another five or 600 people that are learning about Assembly Row and probably coming there other times of the week. So I think it's great. And our teams have been real creative at finding uses like that to you know, weave, into, uh, weave into our properties before we go vertical on a site. Pickleball is obviously very big right now. I mean, you can't really read a real estate publication without reading about some pickleball concept that's gone somewhere. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are doing those and leveraging off the popularity of that activity right now at their properties. But, 
you know, we've always been more focused on, again, being part of the community and uh, being part of what you need every day or every week or every month. And, you know, not necessarily hugely entertainment driven. We have a handful of movie theaters at our, at our properties. We have a, a few other uses, you know, like, like bowling concept or, or something like that. But we don't go, we don't go overboard on uh, the entertainment. We want it to be a little bit more, you know, daily, weekly needs, organic shopping oriented, you know, food and beverage oriented. So, but the interim uses like Park Social and like Volo up at Assembly Row have just been fabulous ads for us. So maybe at Bark Social will eventually redevelop that land? Well, in the long term, long term, that's the plan. Sure. I see. Interesting. So Federal has recently broadened its real estate use focus to healthcare with biotech plans at, at Pike and Rose and Assembly Row in Somerville, Mass. Your office building expansion at Pike and Rose is, interest, is unique as your place, quote-unquote, has seemed to attract users. Our recent, other recent trends attracting other user types, what else are you seeing as far as attraction? Well, I mean, again, step back or step up to 10 or 20,000 feet. And, you know, if you build a property like Assembly Row or Pike and Rose, and you've created this great place on on the ground level, right? The place with the... Uh, the restaurants, the retail, the services, the great outdoor dining, the parks, the places to sit and have a conversation or a cup of coffee with a friend. What you want to do then is is capitalize on that place you've created. You've drawn people to the property. So, you know, now let's let's build some apartments. Let's add a hotel. Um because not only do people want to shop and eat out and you know go to a movie of these kind of places. Gee, they're great places to live as well. They're also great places to work. So whether that means, you know, occupying traditional office space or occupying a life sciences space, we want to capitalize on the place we've created and, you know, not only create a great, great place to, you know, shop and be entertained and live, but also a great place to work, which is why you've seen us add office and, you know, ultimately when the market's right. Back into equilibrium, add life science at a couple of our properties as well. And we've had tremendous success coming out of the pandemic, leasing our office space. Again, if you look at the big four properties, we're, our standing office inventory is 97% leased. And we've done uh, close to 60 deals for nearly 900,000 square feet at those properties since the middle of 2020. And what we've seen happen is you know companies that might have been further out in the suburbs or might have been in an older building say hey you know i want to get my employees back to work and in order to do that not only do i need to give them a great building with you know all the appropriate air handling and touchless elevators and touchless faucets in the bathroom to make them feel safe but they need to have some place to come to work that they're going to enjoy where they can walk out the front door and have 15, 20 places to choose from to go for lunch, where they can show up early in the morning and go to the health club and get a a workout in before work, or where they can go to a bar or restaurant after dinner and meet their wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, whatever, and have uh, dinner and a couple drinks. And that's that's what employees are, are demanding of their employers today. Employers recognize that. 
And that's why we've seen so much demand for office space in our mixed-use properties. Oftentimes, the tenants that are coming here are paying much more per square foot in rent, but they're taking less space. So their overall rent bill is lower. But we're really happy with how the demand for our office space has accelerated, again, largely as a result of the pandemic and the effort to get everybody back to work. And, you know, hopefully when when the market writes itself a little bit, we'll be in a position to continue to add those types of uses and life sciences uses at Pike and Rose and Assembly Rail. But it'll take some time. Listening to you talk, Jeff, makes me think that if federal realty were to assemble, say, 20 acres of downtown Washington and build Pike and Rose from scratch there, the land and the incentives were right, it could be very special. And I don't, don't <laughs> we don't want to be in an urban core, but I'm telling you, the urban core needs a Pike and Rose right now. Now we have the wharf. Right. And we have, you know, what Edens has done at Union Market is a special experiment. So those are two good retail examples of, you know, the ambiance, I think, that similar to what you have done. But if we could do it closer to the CBD with something like that, that would be extraordinary. It would actually turn the city around, I think, if it could be done quickly enough. But I don't think it can. Unfortunately, it's just, it's a dream. That's all. <laughs> I'll just express it. I'm trying to convene a group of people, a group, some groups into downtown Washington spring, one of the office buildings to get people to think out of the box, to try to recreate downtown. So if federal wants to get involved in that, let me know. I'd be love it. If you would uh, to help think it through. Cause as much as you'd like to be first tier, and you guys are in most of the places, the urban core still drives the market overall generically. And if it weren't for the federal government, Washington, D.C. wouldn't exist. So here we are. Uh, it's a tough time right now, and we need help. So yeah. I just, I'll throw it down the gauntlet. You're right. It is it is a tough time, and I love what they've done at the wharf and what Edens has done with the Union Market. I, I think they're great. Yep. When you hire people, Jeff, what characteristics do you seek in federal? Well, again, backing up a bit, right? So the, the culture here at federal is very open, very transparent. You know, Don's created a very flat, organizational structure. Everybody here works very hard. Everybody here is very direct and very honest. And, you know, whether it's something that's gone right or more importantly, something that's gone wrong, you know, people here are not afraid to raise their hand and, and let people know that. Um, so, so problems can be dealt with quickly. And, you know, so if there's something great going on, we can take advantage of it. So, you know, if you want to come work at federal, you, you got to be that type of person. You know, if you're used to being in a very hierarchical organization where, you know, you got to ask permission from three people to talk to, you know, the two people that report up to you, you're not going to make it here. It is, it's open, it's flat, and it's hardworking. And those are the characteristics we look for in, in people. You know, we want you to be very honest, you know, very honest about what you can contribute. 
and we want you to be curious uh, and we want you to, you know, have a growth mindset. And I, you know, there's a statistic here. I don't know it off the top of my head, but our failure rate is within the first three years. Right. And yep. yeah, we make a hiring mistake. We generally know and, and that hiring mistake reveals itself fairly quickly. If you're at federal and you're at federal for more than three years, you're probably here for a very, very long time. It's just a, a great team of people that have been together for, for a long time because, you know, nobody's sensitive about constructive criticism and we're always looking at every situation as, you know, well, we did this last time. How can we do it better the next time? Right. What doesn't work with me and I don't think it works with a lot of other people here is, well, why'd you do that? Well, that's how we did it last time. Right. Or that's how we do it. No, it's, you know, constant, uh, uh, relentless pursuit of doing something better each time you do it. Well, change is a constant thing, right? That's right. Well, especially in retail. Yeah. Just not (laughs) stop. So yeah, you, you gotta be, you gotta be a person that can deal with that and not everybody can. And that's fine. That's fine. It's just, I mean, it's just nonstop change. You probably don't fit here long term. Yeah. But it's a it's a great place to work. Um, Don's created a great culture here, and I think that culture has you know permeated itself throughout the organization. And you know, again, if you fit, you're you're going to be here for a long time and have a lot of fun and and learn a lot of new things and constantly yeah. be growing. And you know, honestly, John, that's why I've stayed here for as long as I have. I've had the I, ability to do a bunch of different things here. I've had the ability to you know, grow on my own without you know. Uh, necessarily being under anybody's thumb, and we try and give everybody here that same opportunity. Shows I wanted to pivot pivot back to just one question I did not ask, and I wanted to just on that sure. same theme, and that is the difference in your mind from a cultural standpoint of a private equity investment company and a, and a private enterprise, and being in a public company with its reporting requirements and all the different. I'll just give you my perspective. Mine is. You're more like a machine, you know, a factory where you're producing things at a fairly steady pace. You want to keep things within a certain beta. You're not looking at great big wins and, you know, lean years or saving up for things. Yours is kind of a steady stream of revenues that you want to keep going over time with some uptick. Well, keep steady, steady uptick. Yeah. Keep growing over time, but not just these expansive growth you know, spikes and then declines based on the economy, right? which often happens in private equity firms. So talk about the different cultural values that well, you you've know, been I, in both sides. I don't know that it's necessarily a cultural difference. I, I think it's more of a mindset difference, right? Okay. So, and to me, the mindset difference comes from we're an investor, not a trader, right? right. So the decisions we make are long-term decisions to create long-term property level income growth, right? Mm -hmm. If we buy something or develop it, like I said earlier, we intend to own it indefinitely. So that changes your thinking when you're making those acquisitions or development or reinvestment decisions. We're not short-term focused. Sure, we report our results quarterly, but we think very, very long-term. And we think very long-term about uh, creating value, creating value within our communities and figuring out, you know, the best way over time to add value to our real estate and accretively grow the income streams from our real estate. That's different, obviously, than if you're a trader, 
because if you're a trader, you're looking to take advantage of a not advantage in a bad way by any means, but you're looking to take advantage of a situation and to create value and exit in a relatively short period of time. So you do not have that long-term investment mindset. So, you know, I'm not sure it's a cultural difference. I think it's more of a mindset difference. What, how did you sense that, the, that you liked the, the more long-range investment strategy as opposed to doing the, the investment, the Blackstone model of buy, fix, and sell type of approach to business? Yeah, I, I think it just it, it, it intellectually made more sense to me because real estate is such a long-term asset class. Yep. I think it, it, it marries the asset class with the investment strategy better. I mean, Blackstone, we use them as an example. They've obviously been enormously successful, very, very good at what they do. So it's just different. And, you know, it fit better for me in the way I think. So everybody's different in that regard. Well, it's the roots, I think, of, of the companies. You know, when you think of Blackstone, their roots is private equity. And then that's their thought process. So that's probably it. So. SG is important today with every real estate. How has federal implemented its sustainability programs? Well, so yeah, ESG, you're right, uh, uh, is hugely important these days and has become a big focus, uh, you know, at a lot of different levels within the business world, right? And, you know, REITs are, REITs are no exception. I guess the way we view it is, you know, ESG for us is not a report you need to do or a form you need to fill out or a box you need to check. It's the way you run your business. And before ESG became something that everybody was focused on, we ran our business in a very sustainable way. You know, we were one of the first to start putting solar panels on our roofs to uh, reduce our energy consumption. Uh, we started doing that many, many years ago. And I think we have the largest amount of solar power generated in our properties of any of our public peers, even though our footprint is much smaller than theirs, we generally speaking have much less square footage than our publicly paired, publicly traded peers. We, for a long time, have had a uh, green box initiative that we uh, we employ with our tenants, where we are building out their box or their space in the most environmentally conscious and sustainable way. We've had that program for a long time. That's been a part of our lease document for a long time, you know, before it, before it became a thing to do. You know, the, the nature of our properties being in closer in um, locations in a, in a metropolitan area, many with public transportation, um, many with mixed uses where people live, work, and play at the same property. You know, just the nature of our business has been much more aligned with ESG principles and you know, it's it's kind of how we've always how we how we've always operated. In the last few years, obviously, it's it's become a reporting requirement and something that's very focused on. But to us, it's more of a, a way we conduct our business and something we've been doing for a, for a very long time. So it's an ingrained part of your culture, is what you're saying, basically. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, if you look at our development programs, you know, we've been developing lead. Um, designated buildings for quite a while now. Pike and Rose, I think, is the first. I'm not sure if it's still the only, but the first lead gold neighborhood in the country. Wow. Okay. That, you know, the, the, the seeds for that had to be planted a long time before yeah, you know, ESG became a thing. So, you know, it's kind of how 
it's kind of how we've lived and operated for a long time, John. And, you know, now it's, now it's important and it's important to report upon and we're doing that. I mean, I would encourage you or anybody that's listening to the podcast to go to our website and, and read our most ESG, most recent ESG report. It's, it's fascinating. That's uh, great. Done a really good job of uh, uh, reducing our uh, electrical uh, and, and other energy consumption. We've done a great job of acquiring that electricity from sustainable sources. I think 55% of our electricity is from zero carbon sources. So That's great. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, really you know, good. Yeah, and it's again, it's part of the the, the thinking and the business philosophy here and uh, has been for a long time before. That helps save your tenants money as well as you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, oh, yeah. And absolutely. And that's, you know, again, we're, we're, we're trying and always have been running the business in the most efficient way possible, a lot of which lines up directly with, you know, what people are required to do under ESG. That's great. So let's shift to personal things. What are your life priorities among family, work, and giving back, Jeff? <laughs> you know, it's 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 funny. Given given what we do, right, and and given what I do at the company, it almost all melts together, right? Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to create places that are part of your community, part of your daily life. Right. Uh-huh. So if I've got a couple kids in the car and, you know, we're on their way to uh, uh, a lacrosse game or something like that when they were younger, you know, we'd check out three or four restaurants on the way. We would find the best donut place to uh, buy donuts to take for the team or not at your property, but other people's property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're, right. we're out in the world looking for stuff. So, I, you know, and gee, it's time to go out to eat at night. Well, you know, let's check out this place because maybe they'd be good in a federal realty property. But, you know, it, it, it kind of becomes... Well, your whole life is integrated. It yeah, like yeah. That. You know, it's it's kind of a joke around our house, but uh, somebody <laughs> asked somebody asked my son when he was young, I don't know, six or seven years old, what's your dad do for a living? Oh, he shops and eats out. <laughs> so it really is, you know, it really is uh, uh a continuum to me. It doesn't matter what time of day it is or what day of the week it is. That's funny. If you're a, if you're if you do what we do, the way you do it best is by getting out there and you know traveling, going to different cities, going to different parts of the city you live in, trying new things, and you know seeing what others are doing, and you bring that back to to work. And you know, obviously, you know, being engaged and and giving back is is a big part of that as well. And you know, I I got a lot of help. When, when I got into this business from people like Susan Karras, right, and many others. And, you know, one of the ways I give back is if anybody ever wants to talk to me about our business broadly or talk to me about federal realty or they need help on an assignment or their real estate classes at school, I never say no. That's great to hear. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important. That's- I think it's important. I, you know, look at my, I grew up in a family that wasn't a business oriented family, not a real estate oriented family by any means. I've never had really one mentor my whole career. I've had probably a bunch of different mentors along the way. And I think, you know, when, especially when you're young and especially when you're trying to figure out, you know, what to do when it seems like there's many, many things that you could do. 
getting a little advice and input along the way is a good thing. And I'm, I'm happy to be able to, to do that. So. Mm-hmm. But what advice would you give your 25 year old self today? <laughs> yeah, boy, that was a long time ago. Let me think about that. <laughs> you know, th- this is a people business, right? And one of the reasons I like real estate so much is it's, it's, it's very much about the other people in the business. And, uh, you know, I think what I would tell myself is just figure out a way to meet and know as many people as you can, even if they don't do exactly what you think you want to do, or even if they don't do anything that's directly related to what you're doing today, right? Mm-hmm. Especially yep. when you think it's advance in your career, having a, having a broad network of people in the business that do different things is important. So making every effort to do that and, you know, do it outside of real estate too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to, you, you got you know, because everything that goes on in the world, one way or the other impacts what's happening in, in real estate, right? Yeah. I have a community of young people that I've built and that, that's been my major, major message is just the networking piece and understanding what it is to get to know relationships in our business, basically. Yep. Yep. So that's my major theme. Yeah, well, that's great. I agree. So, Jeff, if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? Wow, John, that sounds to me like free advertising. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. The Capitol Beltway got all our Maryland and Virginia properties that you can access off the Capitol Beltway. I think I would say shop at a federal realty property and I'd list them all. Maybe across the bottom, I'd say something like, come check out the new Chesterbrook or something like that. But boy, free billboard, billboard on the Capitol Beltway. That, yeah, there you go. Got to take advantage of that, right? Well, it's interesting. You're the first one really to give a commercial message to me <laughs> to some extent, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm, sure that's not, I'm sure that's very not what you're looking for. Personal messages, mostly yeah, what I'm, I've gotten. I'm, in the I'm sure that's not what you're looking for, but that's my. But that's fine. Yeah. You know, that's okay. No problem. You have a big footprint, and retailers typically have that method, that method, that thought process because that's right. You know, you want to spread it. I didn't tell you that I my dad was a was a department store uh, manager and owner and buyer. So I have retail in my blood. So I I know what your thought process is big time. So yeah. it's it's been a good. Good one. Well, I appreciate your time, Jeff, very much. This has been a really wide-ranging and good conversation. I appreciate your time. I enjoyed it, John. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Have a good day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.